Welcome into Tab's Takes on WERW. I'm your host, Ryan Tab. Happy Wednesday to everybody who's listening today. We got a big show ahead of us. And I'm happy once again to be back in the studio. So the final four is here. The stage is set. And four teams are ready to make a play at college basketball history and continue to build their legacies. Now, if you make the Final Four, you've already had a great season. So that much is taken care of. But when you get this close, you don't want to go home with nothing to show for it. So Texas Tech is going to take on Michigan State. Virginia is going to take on Auburn. Both those games are on Saturday in the late evening. And Texas Tech is going to take their gritty defense up against Michigan State, who might at this point... If you look at all the teams in college basketball and how they finish their seasons, they might be the most balanced team in the country. They're elite on both ends of the floor. And in my mind, this this game is Michigan State's to lose. I had Texas Tech going to the Final Four in my brackets. I really believe in them, and I believed in them as a team, but there gets to a point where I don't think that they're going to be competitive enough on the offensive end to keep up with Michigan State, who's so efficient and effective on both sides of the ball. Michigan State's guy is junior guard Cassius Winston. He averages 19 points a game. But the thing about Michigan State, and this is what I talk about when they say they're well-balanced, not only do they balance their offense well with their defense, but they balance each side of the ball individually. So they're dangerous from everywhere offensively. You look at Cassius Winston, like I said, 19 a game, huge for college basketball to average numbers like that. But you throw in Ward, Tillman, Langford, and then Goins, and you've got scoring with size as well, if not, if not all of it starting. Sorry, excuse me, not all of it even starts. So they've got a bunch of guys who can come and provide a scoring punch for you, whether they come off the bench or they start. They're one of the top teams in the country in passing the basketball. They assist incredibly well. They're one of the top rebounding teams in the country. They defend without fouling. All of it, they do at a very high level. And then Texas Tech, they're led by Jarrett Culver. But when it comes to the tournament, it's actually usually senior leadership that comes up big. So Matt Mooney's been a real big bright spot for them in this run they've had so far. But my difference maker in this game is going to be Tariq Owens. He started his career at Tennessee, then he made a move transferring to St. John's for two years, and now he's playing his senior season as a Red Raider. And outside of Culver, Owens is Texas Tech's best player above six foot three, which says a lot. They're a very small team. And when he's out of the game, or he's drawn to a perimeter assignment, They get even smaller to the point that sometimes you're looking at the screen and it looks like they're just at a competitive disadvantage physically. It doesn't mean they are because of how technically skilled their team is. But you just take a look at them and sometimes you're kind of shocked at how small they are. So particularly when Owens is drawn outside or he's on the bench. He's 6'10", 205 pounds. He's skinny, but he uses his length really well. He has a high motor. He doesn't give up on plays. A lot of times you'll see long guys in college basketball. They go up, they get a block, they come back down, and someone just lays the ball back in. But then you see these guys who love to double jump. They come down, they go right back up, they make a second block again, get the ball moving in transition. Owens is one of those guys. So those kinds of skill sets are huge in close games, right? Coming down the stretch, it was so disappointing, actually, and we're going to get to Duke in a little bit, but it was so disappointing to watch R.J. Barrett all season, but particularly in the biggest games of the year with the season on the line, 
effectively give up on some plays defensively. I've never seen a player who, after getting beat by, what, a quarter step, will just right off the bat give up on that play. On the final play where they needed to foul, Zion Williamson is chasing R.J. Barrett's man around the court after R.J. just let him go. So having a guy like Tariq Owens who has a high motor and never gives up on plays is huge when it comes down to the Final Four. It's huge all season. It's huge all season. Let me put that out there first. It's not like these skill sets are more or less valuable in certain games, but you play more close games because you play better teams in the tournament. So that's where these small differentiating factors come into play. So I think he'll be the difference maker for Texas Tech. But I still think Michigan State wins over a very, very good Texas Tech team. Like I said, I had them in my Final Four. I've believed in them all season. Chris Beard is an elite coach in college basketball. He's making his name known for that now. Obviously, it has to be sustained success. But to take a team like Texas Tech, Texas Tech, we're not talking about Texas. Who made the wrong hire when they got Shaka Smart. What, six, seven years ago? But Texas Tech makes their first Final Four in school history. I won't be surprised if Texas Tech wins this game. But I think Michigan State can keep up with them defensively and will outplay them offensively. I talked about Matt Moody having been a bright spot during this tournament run. But over the course of his season at Texas Tech, he hasn't been a particularly effective scorer, not an efficient scorer. He has been in the tournament because he's been connecting on tough shots. I don't necessarily like to ride with the idea of guys hitting tough shots. At least not something like that to put all my eggs in that basket. You have to hit tough shots to win close games, but when a team is getting by by hitting those kinds of shots, I think it's reason to be concerned when they match up with another really good team or when they just have to do it consistently. So Michigan State, I think, wins that game and goes to the finals. And then the other side of the bracket, it's Virginia-Auburn. Tony Bennett's now in a territory he's never been before. And he's got this slow, grinded-out squad that he always has. They're facing off against an athletic, three-point-loving, transition-scoring squad in Bruce Pearl's Auburn team. It's really a tale of two styles of play. Virginia is led by Kyle Guy, DeAndre Hunter, Ty Jerome, names you know. DeAndre Hunter is a top 10 NBA prospect. Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome have been making names for themselves at Virginia for two and three years now. And you've got Diakite, who's their sort of X-factor guy, right? I mean, he obviously was the difference maker against Purdue. He hit that mid-range scramble shot to force overtime and then ultimately win the game. He was so much more than an X-factor then, but he's the guy who can make or break these types of games for Virginia in my mind. Jack Salt, too. He's the only senior on the team. And there was a stretch of games this season, four or five games, where he didn't even score, but that's not what they ask him to do. He plays hard, he plays physical, he sets screens, he's unselfish, and he just wants to win. He's almost the ultimate college basketball player in that sense. Not that he's the best, but if you're looking at a guy who kind of sums up late, early 2000s college basketball style, he's kind of a chunky big who doesn't have much of an offensive skill set at all. But he loves to set hard screens, play that defense I talked about, and his team rallies around the energy he brings. You need that. You need defense. 
That's why three of the four teams in the Final Four are three of the top, what, five or six defensive teams in the country? Depending on whose metrics you look at. But per Ken Palm, that would be the case. So between Diakite and Salt, I think that's where Virginia is actually going to see the difference in this game. Because this can't be one of the games where Kyle Guy goes out there and just hits a bunch of threes and tries to carry them to a win. And one of the narratives surrounding Virginia, and Tony Bennett in general, his coaching style, is that Virginia plays this slow pace, grinded out defense, and then the offensive end, they're just inept. And that's not the case. They don't score on offense, but that's a reflection of pace. Points per possession tells you how effective they're being when they do have the ball. How often are they scoring when they do get opportunities to? If there's just half as many possessions in a game and you score half the points, you're playing the same level of offense as that other team that got twice as many opportunities. So Virginia is actually very effective in their half-court offense. But sometimes when you take them out of their rhythm and they feel rushed, that's when you see particularly Ty Jerome start taking ill-advised shots. He, to me, is the guy on that Virginia team that gets rattled the most easily. If I'm Bruce Pearl and I'm game planning for this, I immediately try and get Ty Jerome out of his rhythm in this game. Make him feel like he has to make shots. Pressure him. Make him feel like the shot clock's running out when there's still eight or nine seconds left. Suffocate him. When he gets inside, double-team him. Make him uncomfortable. I think that's, outside of just playing their style and brand of basketball, Auburn's best bet to win this game. If you're looking at a guy in Virginia who could potentially cost you the game because he gets rattled, Ty Jerome's your guy. And then Auburn, so they're, they're playing without their starting forward, Chumo Kiki, who tore his ACL two games ago. Sophomore starting forward. So that forced Horace Spencer into the starting lineup, and he goes up against Kentucky in what I believe was his second start of the season. He had one early in the year. He averages four points a game and four rebounds a game. So it's not like people were expecting a lot out of him. But those numbers are somewhat a reflection of limited playing time considering he was playing behind Okiki. Well, he comes in as a starter against Kentucky, goes 0 for 3 and fouls out. So somehow Auburn wins that game against Kentucky. Not somehow, but considering that their starting center went 0 for 3 and fouled out. If you tell a team that before the game, they're probably not very excited about the prospects, about their prospects in winning that game. But Auburn makes up for where they're struggling on the interior right now with their three-point shooting. They love to shoot the three ball. They shoot a lot of threes. Up until Okiki got injured, they had three real deep threats. And then they force turnovers, get out and run. And so when you're a team that can hit threes, but you're athletic and can also throw down on the break, those are the kinds of opportunities where you can get big runs going on, six, seven, eight, oh runs in the tournament, shift the entire energy of the game, shift the momentum, get the fans, get the crowd into it. That's where Auburn's most dangerous. And Virginia is not a team that can play from behind because of that pace. They want to limit you from start to finish. If you start pushing them to try and play catch-up ball, you're doing pretty well for yourself. So I expect Virginia to win this game considering Okiki was more than the obvious presence he had for the team, one of Auburn's best shooters from deep. So as a unit, you're pretty much saying we lose not only our starting center, he's a forward, but he plays the five for them. We're losing a starter who's a stretch big and contributes on the interior as much as he does to our three-point barrage. 
that's not looking so good. If Auburn gets hot, though, if they can force the turnovers I mentioned, then we're looking at a different story. But more likely than not, Virginia probably controls the pace here. And then with the issues down low inside the paint where Kentucky actually thrived considering the depth issues for Auburn, I think DeAndre Hunter and Diakite have a field day. But this is the Final Four. Everything we think goes out the window in the Final Four. I mentioned the 32-0 Kentucky team a lot because I think that tournament run in general kind of exemplifies what March Madness is about in that everything you think you know about a team can disappear into thin air over the course of one game. And it doesn't change the identity of who the team is. It's not that you were wrong about what you thought. It's just that it didn't matter that one day. And that one day was the only day it had to matter. So it's entirely possible that Virginia gets into a shootout and wins. But I don't think that's likely. I don't think Virginia wants that. I don't think they'd be comfortable in that situation. And sure, I guess it's possible too that Auburn could get into a slugfest and pull out that win. Etc., etc. But 32-0 Kentucky loses to Frank Kaminsky and his Wisconsin team then goes on to lose in the national championship game. Everyone's talking about that Wisconsin-Kentucky matchup like it was the national championship game. It was played like a national championship game. Wisconsin felt like they won the national championship when they won that game. And Kentucky was the best team in the country all year, and they still were, even when they lost that game. So the Final Four, the tournament in general, everything you think you know about a team may not matter if it doesn't come into play that specific day. But I'm projecting a Virginia-Michigan State matchup And I think Michigan State, outside of Duke, was the most lethal threat to Virginia in this tournament. So as much as I believe Virginia is the best team in the country, Duke was the only team to beat Virginia during the regular season, and they did it because they just had such a physical advantage on them. But Michigan State is the team that I feel can hang with any team in the country because even if you excel in a certain part of the game, Some teams are known to be offensively genius. Some teams are known to be defensively these types of Virginia squads that just take you out of your element and grind you down over the course of 40 minutes. Michigan State, to me, is the only team in the country. Maybe Gonzaga starts to get into that category. But for for what I've seen this postseason over the course of the regular season, Michigan State's the only team that can go toe-to-toe with anybody on either side of the court and is flexible in their play style. Because they have so much talent, they can really get in. And then they have an elite coach, right? Some teams just have talent. Some teams just have coaching. Few teams have both. And then even when you get into that territory, few excel on both sides of the ball. So for me, if Tom Izzo game plans right, they can win any game that they play. That's dangerous because they're flexible. They can go into the locker room, and if something wasn't working, they can come out and look like an entirely different team in the second half. They usually don't have to, but they're capable of that. That's dangerous. So looking at this group of four right now, I think Michigan State's the favorite to win the national title, although I believe that Virginia's the best team left. It's just a matter of matchups. But that would be a great game if we get it. In fact, any of the matchups would be a great game. Any of them would. We're going to go to break. And when we get back, I want to talk a little bit about undue criticism for some of the top coaches in college basketball. 
You're listening to the Tabs Takes on WERW. Keep it here. Welcome back to Tabs Takes on WERW. Thanks for sticking with us through the break. And like I mentioned, coming out of this break, I wanted to discuss some of the undue criticism that two of the best coaches in college basketball have been receiving as of the past couple days. More or less since the finishing of the Elite Eight. And I want to discuss what constitutes a bad coach who's having success and the difference between that and maybe a good coach who's engaging in bad coaching practices. I want to get into a lot of nuance here. So stick with me, pay close attention, and we're going to get into it. So obviously bad coaches lose, right? And, and good coaches win, and that generally holds true with the exception of some circumstances that more or less would involve circumstances of great talent disparity. You might get a team where a bad coach could take them to a championship, right? Like, I could go and coach the Golden State Warriors and win games, but I wouldn't necessarily be a good coach for that. And you could give Greg Popovich a middle school basketball team, but if they're playing in the NBA... He would lose games It wouldn't necessarily be a bad coach for that. But more or less, good coaches win, bad coaches lose. That's nothing shocking. That's just a baseline we're setting here. So after Duke lost to Michigan State in the Elite Eight, and then Kentucky lost to Auburn in that same round, people were coming out of the woodwork, out of God knows where, going on Twitter, this Twitter abyss where you can say whatever you want, and sometimes it acts as an echo chamber where the few people who agree with you are going to comment on it. All of a sudden, you get some traction, and it looks like this is actually something that Sports Twitter agrees with, the sports community agrees with, but enough people say it that it starts becoming discussed in some way, at least some relevant way. And then sometimes you get somebody who has a voice, 10, 20, 30, 50,000 followers, retweeting it. Maybe as a joke, maybe not. Maybe it's cryptic. Maybe they just put an emoji. And you get these ridiculous narratives that end up trending in some way or another. So people came out and they started saying how Mike Krzyzewski and John Calipari have actually been less successful than their legacy, and the public perception of their legacy would lead you to believe if you were just starting to learn about college basketball today, or that the rest of us who have believed in them for years are wrong to do that because of how they performed lately. So I believe that two or three things are more telling than anything else when it comes to coaching assessment. So first, there's consistency, which involves having a system, it involves teaching, and then it involves growing within that identity of your system, and that requires flexibility. Flexibility is really, really big when it comes to coaching. And then there's just this basic level of self-reflection that's included in that ability to be flexible. It's required to realize where you have to be flexible. And then again, generally just engaging in the practice of good coaching habits. Coach K and John Calipari are and do all of those things. So let's start with Calipari. People want to criticize him now for having only won one national title in 10 years. People want to criticize him now for going four years without a Final Four appearance, considering the talent level on his team, right? Nobody's criticizing certain teams, and you're not going to criticize a mid-major for missing the Final Four. But the amount of talent Calipari's had on his team is actually 
more NBA draft picks than Duke and North Carolina combined in the stretch of time that he's had success there. He's been working with college basketball all-star teams. In that regard, I think people are to some degree just in looking at the situation and trying to see if there's an underlying issue. But when you fail to actually find out if there is one and you just jump to criticizing him and saying he's underperforming, you're not engaging in good analysis. John Calipari has successfully perfected the one-and-done coaching model. He's made the most, the absolute most, out of a flawed system. Think about the idea of how long it takes coaches to institute their methods and practices into the minds of their players, and then for those players to learn them. We like to think it's magic. People take time to learn. It just takes people time to learn. Some people learn at faster rates than others. And we're not just asking players to learn these systems, we're asking them to really master them. So when you have guys who you have to reload on every season and your best player just disappears every time you've had them for 30 games, it's tough to be successful. But he's more or less perfected the one-and-done coaching model. And there's too many variables in a season, in a program, in a tournament for, for any team to expect a multi-title run in this era of college basketball. Yes, you have Jay Wright getting Virginia, excuse me, getting Villanova to the national championship game multiple times, winning two of them. But then they have a year like this where they fall off a little bit. And even that would easily be considered one of the most dominant coaching runs in a three or four year span we've seen in the last 20 to 30 years of college basketball. So one in 10 years is enough. That's what Calipari's got at Kentucky. He's got one title in 10 years. And it's enough because you have to consider that he has Kentucky sitting as a staple of the Elite Eight and then oftentimes the Final Four. We're not talking about a Kevin Ollie situation where he wins one national championship, but then UConn falls apart. And it's evident he's a bad coach. No, Calipari has this Kentucky team succeeding. And in a single-game elimination tournament, only one team is going to be able to put together a six-game winning streak. Winning four or five games is enough if you can occasionally make it to or win the national championship. So one in 10 years is enough. One in 15 is not. One in 20 is not. But you can't knock that 32-0 team for not winning the title. It's a shame. You would have hoped they did. And we're going to get into this too, but it's the same way you can't knock this Duke team for not winning a title. You can't at least knock them by putting the responsibility on the shoulders of their head coach. I can promise you that if the tournament was actually built on a system that crowned the best team in college basketball, Calipari would have more than one ring. I can promise you that with the utmost certainty. There have been more than one time that he's had the best team in college basketball. But that just doesn't always translate into a ring at the end of the season. Right? That's why so many times we see teams win their conference in the regular season and not even win their conference tournament. 
Single elimination tournaments do not crown true champions. It's beautiful, it's fun, it's exciting, and I hope it never changes. But it's not an effective way to judge the best team in the sport. Okay, so that's Calipari. That much is clear. But I did mention that at least looking into and asking these questions is appropriate when it comes to Calipari. That's not the case with Coach K. That's not the case for Mike Krzyzewski. It's not appropriate to criticize him in any way because this Duke team didn't win the national championship. I mentioned it's a shame. But none of the issues with this team is on the shoulders of Coach K. The criticism is even more outlandish than it was for Calipari. So, yes, he did this year have the most talented roster by a wide margin in college basketball. And yes, he had a top three college basketball talent of the last decade in Zion Williamson. At least coming out of high school and talking about guys who lived up to the standard we expected them to. Anthony Davis. Zion Williamson. And there's a few other guys you could make an argument for. But I would say Zion has to be in that top three at the very least. The true reasons behind Duke's struggles in the tournament, as I mentioned, in no way fall on Coach K's shoulders. So that's what I'm talking about when I mentioned bad coaching practices. Bad coaches just can't self-reflect. Bad coaches, they stick to their guns when things aren't working. They believe too much in their ideas. They don't believe enough in themselves and their ability to create new ideas or modify their old ideas. They don't trust themselves. Coaches who have answers and opportunities to try new solutions. Coaches who have these things sitting right in front of them but don't take advantage of them, who don't try them, who don't take risks to engage in better coaching practices, who don't try new things to get better when things clearly aren't working. That's bad coaching. And those coaches have those problems and are problematic at any level of the game. And it's not restricted to bad coaching. Good, even great coaches can engage in bad coaching practices. Just like great players can take bad shots. Jim Beheim, for example, is one of those coaches. And I've spent a lot of time talking about Beheim on this show. I'm not going to waste much more on him right now. But he does highlight this situation. There's no arguing. He's an all-time great in the sport. One of the greatest college basketball coaches to ever set foot on a sideline. But he also refuses to acknowledge and or make an effort to fix the glaring weaknesses in his system. And that's as big a coaching crime as any. It is. Self-reflection is a skill in life that will help you in your schoolwork, in your professional environment, and in anything you do. So that applies to these coaches' jobs. If you have a system that more or less works, and this is why I pick Beheim, because he does. He does have a system that more or less works. But everybody else can see opportunities to make it work better. And you don't take advantage of them. You don't even try them. You're so risk-averse and you're so confident in your brainchild that is the system you've been running for 40 years that you don't try anything new. 
That's bad coaching. By a good coach, that's bad coaching. So Coach K, he didn't win this season because his team couldn't shoot the three ball and they couldn't shoot free throws. That's why he didn't win. It's that simple. We're in a shooting era of basketball, NBA, AAU, college ball. It does not matter. Teams are shooting more efficiently. They're shooting more outside shots. And people are realizing the value of free throws and threes. There's a reason that James Harden, from a statistical standpoint, from an analytical standpoint, is a special basketball player. Layups, threes, free throws. Those are the three most effective shots in basketball. That's all he takes. So you don't have to be James Harden. You don't have to be the Houston Rockets. You don't have to play Mori Ball. You can take mid-range twos and succeed in college basketball. But you're going to have to take some threes. And when you do take them, you're going to have to make them. Duke was 244th in the country in free throw percentage. 244th. On wide open mid-range shots that are the same every single time and you know you're going to get them every game. It's supposed to be an advantage. Free throws are supposed to benefit a team when the opposing team commits a violation. They're supposed to help you. They hurt Duke. Free throws hurt Duke. Duke was 330th in three-point percentage this season. You need to make threes to succeed in today's college basketball world. You don't need to make a ton of them, but you have to make some of them. And if you're not making a lot of them, you can't shoot a lot of them. These are not issues you can coach around. These are not tactical issues. With the game on the line, if the best player in college basketball gets to the stripe with an opportunity to shoot free throws, like Zion did against UCF, and he misses the shot, that's not on the coach. Now against UCF, Duke got a miraculous break. They got the putback and they went up one. But that's not on, on Coach K. It's not. And when you have guys go 0 for 10 from 3 this season, individual players who are supposed to be shooting specialists going 0 for 10 in certain games this season, that's not on Coach K. And then when you finally get eliminated because one of your two studs goes to the line, again, in a close situation in the tournament with an opportunity to take things further in the game, and he misses a free throw, that's not on the coach. Now teams with shooting problems their fans will say, you know, it's not it's not that hard to shoot free throws. Man, I, I could shoot 80% from the stripe if I put in the time. Why don't they work on it at practice? I'll tell you why they don't work on it at practice. Because that's a tired trope. They don't work on it at practice because they have limited practice time. The NCAA regulates how much time you can spend practicing each day, each week. It's reasonable. But when their time is regulated, you have to spend it on the most important things. And so if you're losing two or three extra points a game at the free throw line. And it would take hours upon hours upon hours for every single one of your players individually to improve in that regard. Only to maybe make back a point or two in certain circumstances. That's not a valuable skill set to work on 
in practice. It's important. Those players should have the initiative to go to the gym on their own, which they can do, but Coach K can't get him in the gym working on free throws all day and expect to win basketball games. He has to coach. At practice, he has to take advantage of his ability to coach. His players have to learn so when they get in the game, they can be successful and they can hope to get to the opportunity where the pressure's on their shoulders just to hit free throws or hit threes. So that's why Duke lost. Because they couldn't shoot. And I'll tell you what, Coach K did not even look surprised when they lost. It was almost this defeated acceptance. You could see it in his face. To me, it looked like Coach K was thinking, ah, I saw this coming. It is what it is. We couldn't shoot all year. We can't shoot now. And we couldn't rely on just our physical presence to carry us today. This team wasn't eliminated in the first round. They went to the Elite Eight. So if you want to criticize Coach K because this team that was this bad at free throws and threes that they lost in the Elite Eight, you're out of your mind. So I said they can't coach around these issues. Well, Ryan, they can recruit around these issues and they can bring in shooters. Yeah, they can. But it's pretty hard to argue that Coach K didn't do that. He had specialists on the roster. He had guys he thought he could shoot on his bench. And then he brought in two of his three top recruits this year in Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett. They were expected to be somewhere at least in the range of competent to excellent shooters. And both ended in the range of horrible to flat out bad from three. That's not a reflection of coaching. If the top three recruits in the country cannot shoot the basketball and you manage to make an Elite Eight, that is a success as a coach. Did Duke fail this year? You betcha. Absolutely. Duke failed this year. They fell short of their expectations. Did Coach K fail this year? Absolutely not. So when you want to criticize a coach, you need to ask yourself, is there a solution sitting in front of them? You don't have to know what it is. Because if you did, if you knew the solutions to Coach K's coaching problems, one of the greatest coaches to ever coach basketball at any level, Team USA, Duke College basketball, doesn't matter. If you had answers he didn't have, well, you'd have a job coaching basketball. So you don't have to know the answers. You don't have to come at it with a whiteboard and say, this is exactly how we're going to solve these problems. But if you can identify that there's theoretically a solution sitting in front of these guys, and they're not taking advantage of it, or they're too stubborn to try it, or they're too blind to see it, well, now, now we're talking about a coaching problem. But just having players underperform in a skill set area is not a coaching problem. Having players underperform like the Celtics are this year. Well, I love Brad Stevens, and he's a great basketball mind. But he's clearly got a coaching problem when it comes to holding that locker room together and motivating his team. Those players are underperforming across the board. 
But just having guys who you think can shoot not be able to shoot, that's not up to a coach to fix. It's unfortunate. It's really, I mean, I can't say he got dealt a bad hand, right? We're talking about still three of the best, well, two of the best players in college basketball. Radish really did not pan out the way people anticipated he would. He was flat out bad this year. In a lot of games. Cam Reddish was a net negative a lot of the time for Duke. He had his moments. But he did not pan out. But between RJ and Zion, and Zion was not necessarily thought of as a shooter in any way coming into college basketball. But all three of them shot about 32 to 33% from three-point from three-point land this year. All three of them, 32 to 33% from three-point land. That's not on Coach K. They got open looks. They missed him. And even if, even if they were capable of hitting them all year, the only game it counts to make them in is the single elimination game at the end of the season where they ended up losing. So these people who love to be contrarians and go against the grain and criticize the people at the top as if there's anybody who could do the job better. As if there's any sort of solution sitting in front of these guys. Reconsider. Think more. Think smarter. Don't just think, but think, think well. Think intelligently. Ask yourself, is there a solution these guys are missing? Or is it possible that there are other people responsible for their own failures besides the head coach of a program? We're going to go to another break. We'll be back in about five minutes on WERW. You're listening to Tabs Takes. Thanks for tuning in. And we're back on WERW. Back on Tabs Takes. I'm your host, Ryan Tab. Last segment of the day, last segment of the show. Last night, Russell Westbrook had 20 points, 20 rebounds, and 21 assists. He had a double-triple-double. The man had two triple-doubles in one game. That's almost inconceivable. The last person to have a 20-20-20 game was Wilt Chamberlain in the 60s, in the early 60s. Russell Westbrook accomplished history once again last night. And he won. They beat the Lakers, not saying much. And really the only player on the floor for the Lakers was Brandon Ingram, which also isn't saying much. But he got the win. He had 20-20-21. And he did it in honor of Nipsey Hussle. Who is Nipsey Hussle, you might be asking. Nipsey Hussle was a rapper, but he was more than a rapper. Nipsey Hussle was big on giving back. Nipsey Hussle cared about his community, about his friends, about people he didn't even know. He was just a caring person, so it seems. He seems like a good person who used his platform to impact people in a positive way, however he could. Nipsey Hussle was very close with a lot of NBA players. So he was shot and killed earlier this week outside a clothing store he owned in Los Angeles. And his community and his fans much of which is included in the NBA, took that very hard, as you would when you lose someone who's important to you. Westbrook goes out, pregame, he's singing his music, and goes off. Just goes off, on a tear. 
And the first quarter, you could tell Westbrook was going to have a special game. You could tell. The first quarter, you could tell Russell Westbrook was on track for something miraculous. I couldn't tell you what, but we found out. 20-20-21. But I want to talk a little bit about the way we discuss people's legacies because I think it's almost disrespectful the way people have been talking about Nipsey Hussle since he passed away. Since he was murdered. I think it's disrespectful how many people tweet about how much they personally will feel this loss, how much he meant to them, etc. If they didn't know who he was. People love to act like they're a part of this, like it's about them all of a sudden. If hustle truly impacted you, tweet away, express yourself however you need. Feel this and any type of loss in your life, however you want to feel it. Personally, I had never heard of Nipsey Hussle before he died. Maybe I'm out of the loop. Or maybe I just hadn't heard of him. But I hadn't. I just wish more people had the guts to say something like, man, I just found out Nipsey Hussle died. I looked up who he was. He sounds like a great person, and I wish I had known about him before he was gone. His city and his fans will clearly miss him. His community and his fans, his friends and his family. Share that. Share the truth about having wished... If you're going to make it about you, share the truth about having wished you knew known who he was. If you're going to make it about you, share the truth about you having wished you knew who he was before he passed away. Because everybody likes to act like they were his biggest fan. And it feels selfish to me to see people say, oh, someone passed away, I'm going to make this about me now and how this makes me feel bad and how... I'm hurt by this. And a real good person just passed away who I just learned about. So I'll say it. I wish I had known who Nipsey Hussle was and all the good things he was doing before he passed away, unfortunately. But don't make it about you. Make it about the person who everybody else who truly was there and a part of what he was doing. Make it what they're making it about, which is him. Instead of making it about you and acting like you feel what some of his friends and fans and family felt, wish them the best and wish he meant to you what he meant to them. Don't make it about you when it's about something bigger. I will say I'm actually disappointed and I I said I, I wish I knew who he was before he passed away because some of the things that he did giving back to students in underprivileged communities, trying to help them grow and find ways to make it out of bad situations in smart and healthy ways. I'm disappointed I didn't know more about him. I'm disappointed I didn't get to appreciate him while he was around. And I'm sorry to his friends and family and fans who are now without him. That's all I've got for today's show. Thank you for tuning in to Tab's Takes on WERW. Have a great night.